This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, politics of the United States. This week, D.C. bureau chief, the brass ring of Washington news jobs, and the man who runs the biggest one of them all, Antoine Sinfuentes of NBC News, joins the conversation. Few producers have ever traveled with more U.S. presidents, and even fewer have done it with as much grace and professionalism as Antoine. A truly rare and special conversation you will only find here on Polyoptics. Then, the political advertising face of Google. Rob Slitterman and Andrew Ruse join us to share why and how the races of 2012 are meeting their communications goals like never before. I'm joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. And Josh, it's always great to have you here. Well, Adam, it's great to be with you. And what I was struck by, you know, this is a, a week in which a lot of things happen on the campaign trail. President Obama visits Osamwatomie, Kansas, for his uh, replay of Teddy Roosevelt's speech, The New Nationalism. And I think that's probably the first and last time the president will probably visit Kansas in, <laughs> in a four- or eight-year term. But it was also the first week we were absent Herman Cain from the campaign trail. And I seem to understand that that you had a small role in his departure from the campaign trail. Can you well, tell us about it? Well, you know, the cane train has derailed, and uh, I can share some of it with you. Um, in addition to being a polyoptics expert uh, like you, Josh, I, I dabble uh, in actually executing a lot of these things for campaigns and got a call from the Kane campaign in a state of utter disarray uh, 18 hours before the, the candidate was rumored to be exiting the race. And they said, we need a visual. We need a backdrop. And so we worked together very, very quickly to design something that was appropriate to the message that the, the candidate then still presidential candidate Herman Cain, had in mind. And we moved heaven and earth to get this thing printed, to get it shipped, to get it there so they could put it up. But did you happen to see the cover of the New York Times on Sunday, Josh? Well, yeah, Adam, and that's why I was scratching my head, because I had this breathless call from you uh, the night before. You said, there's going to be a beautiful New York Times picture, and it's going to be my backdrop. And instead, I saw a wrinkled black drape behind the soon-to-depart candidate. Yeah, it's a polyoptics don't. It is a story of lack of leadership on the part of those who are advising the candidate. He decided to pull the trigger to get experts to bring his message and his plan B, as he called it, uh, about the canesolutions.com and the people will choose. But that message was never seen by America. And it wasn't seen because the candidate later decided that he would do a reveal. It would be more impactful, he said, if we could just cover it with a black drape and then bring it out at just the right moment. The but important it, part, though, is the timing of that reveal. That's right. It? The reveal was after he had revealed that he was suspending <laughs> his campaign. So let's now do a reveal. On the black drape. And so here you had Herman Cain giving the eulogy at his own funeral on a black drape. And that was the optic that they put out to the world. Lord knows, even with the best of intentions and some really strong consultants who can do things for you, you 
always, always lead with what you've got. You never hold it back. And if you do, that's what America will remember. And that's what America will remember because networks like ABC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, and NBC News were there to cover Herman Cain's departure from the campaign trail. It's rare here on Polyoptics, and we can find a guest who literally bridges uh, the service of Joshua King and Adam Belmar at the White House, and we certainly have that today in Antoine Sanfuentes, who's the Washington bureau chief for NBC News. Uh, Antoine's story is a wonderful one because he is known to just about everybody who is anybody in Washington media. He started as an intern at NBC News and worked his way up, uh, working at the White House as a producer, ultimately being the senior producer of all NBC coverage of the White House, and has traveled extensively with presidents around the globe, across administrations. Antoine, uh, really excited to have you on the broadcast. Welcome to Polyoptics. Well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Josh and I have had you on our our hit list of folks to talk to because we both have uh, a friendship and a relationship with you, and uh, we've traveled so much and, and, and seen the world uh, a little bit differently because of our relationship with you and the coverage that you've done. Uh, and yet here you find yourself leading probably, arguably, the top news bureau in all of Washington. What's it like to sit in Tim Russert's chair, so to speak? Well, it's a great privilege. And if, if I can take you back, perhaps 20 years ago, I stepped into his newsroom and uh, he really showed me the way, every step of the way. It's, it's a job that I've, it's been on the job training. Literally, I started as a, a young desk assistant, worked my way through the, the editorial process, covered the White House for 13 years. And here I sit today as we embark on a, yet another historic election. And it's, uh, it's just wonderful to be here. And Juan, can you share with our viewers how, for you, the NBC bureau chief, the 2012 election will differ from, say, the elections that I traveled with you on, like in 92, 96, 2000, 2004, in which you were literally in a different place every day and what you did as the White House senior producer? Well, I think the, the important change is technology. Here we are today talking on, on a yet another outlet of, of news, if you will, and sharing of information. Uh, nowadays with blogs, uh, Twitter, Facebook, social media, uh, it's important to, to, to understand that the landscape has changed considerably. Therefore, it's the news of now. Information is consumed uh, virtually by anyone at any time. Uh, back in the day, if you will, the, the deadlines were quite different. There was you know, perhaps five stops in between news deadlines, uh, uh, different ways to consume that information. Uh, now it's real time, and I think that's, a, that's a, an important change. One of the things that uh, I think about these days with, with NBC News uh, is the variety of stars, if you will. There's so many larger-than-life characters who have sort of earned their bona fides uh, within the news community having worked with you at the White House. There are a lot of folks who have traveled through that beat, and you've been a mainstay among others in the producing corps there. Uh, one of them in particular is leading the entire network uh, in, in Brian Williams. Uh, you have had uh, a working relationship with him for such a long time now. What is it like to be uh, the Washington bureau chief, having spent so many years working with Brian and others uh, when they played different roles? Well, I'm, I'm proud to say I rode their coattails. I think it's important uh, to work with the best. I, the, the White House certainly is the premier 
uh, flagship uh, place in the news organization to be. Uh, and there's a lot to learn there. And, and we hire and we have the best and the brightest. So I, I've i learned certainly from all the correspondents that, that I've worked with. It's been a tremendous honor to watch them uh, grow and succeed. And as I look at Brian and his success with uh, nightly news and certainly uh, Rock Center on Monday nights, I, 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 uh, I encourage your audience to tune in 10 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, Savannah Guthrie, who is now at the Today Show as a as an anchor. Um, David Gregory, uh, I spent eight years with David covering the White House. He now moderates, as you know, Meet the Press. Uh, Jim Miklaszewski, he's our Pentagon correspondent. I certainly spent a lot of quality time with him there. But really, it was Brian Williams in 1995, if I can take you back to the NAFTA event on the South Lawn, when he asked a young uh, producer in training if he might like to cover the White House. And that was me, and it, and it was uh, really the beginning of an incredible journey. Antoine, President Obama this week went to Ottawatomie, Kansas, which you'd have to, a lot of people have to take a map out to find uh, and but a pool producer uh, needs that in the back of their hand. What's the role of the pool producer and in, in, in to create coverage of the president when he goes to an obscure place? And can you share with our listeners some of the more obscure places that you've had to get a signal out of over your career? Oh, gosh. Where, do, where to begin? Uh, well, the, the pool producer uh, simply uh, works on behalf of the five television networks, ABC, CBS, CNN, uh, Fox, and NBC. The primary responsibility is to cover the President of the United States with the use of cameras and then the associated technology. Uh, by going to these remote places or places in the heartland, again, the, the responsibility, you're doing it for everyone. So you're there with the camera, satellite truck, and all the technology in between to beam it up and make it available to all the other networks uh, and associated cable channels so that you can see it on your TV set. Uh, th- that process, we uh, replicate it all across the globe, uh, sometimes with a lead time. That means we know months in advance so that we can coordinate uh, with uh, the facilities on the ground. I've, I've been to, uh, yes, as you say, some pretty remote spots, actually Yellowstone uh, during right. a, if you recall that, we were yeah. uh, there for a presidential vacation in Jackson Hole. The president opted to make a speech from Yellowstone up close to the uh, the border with Montana. That's right. The trouble is, if when you're using a satellite, a conventional satellite, uh, you've got to see uh, you've got to see the sky. Unfortunately, we were in a bowl of sorts, surrounded by mountaintops. Uh, not exactly uh, helpful if you're trying to get the signal out. Anyway, we figured it out. We moved the truck. We figured out a way to get the signal out. Uh, but the, look, the the, the, the beauty of, of, of taking on something like that is, is uh, the setting. Uh, not only is it history in the making, but it's always an exotic place or a, a uh, place that is uh, significant historically, and the pool producer gets to enjoy all of it. I was the one who produced the USS Lincoln, which was perhaps a defining moment during uh, President Bush's I'm going to uh, go out on a limb and say it was a defining moment. Yes, <laughs> well, I, I figured you would say that. You, you, Mission accomplished there. But but it was uh, logistically and technically quite yeah. a challenge, as you know. 
uh, being on the deck of an aircraft carrier with uh, with your, your crew, uh, and you work rather closely with the White House uh, communications team, uh, it's an important event. But look, some some of your uh, audience members may say, oh, yeah, you know, some may agree with that event and some may disagree. But history uh, always, I think, has a say, and the audience gets to decide. What we do, our responsibility is to get it out. You know, we had uh, Scott Sforz on the show, who was the uh, production chief in the Bush White House before me, someone you worked with. Uh, on that event. Uh, It was a a huge lift from a technical perspective to facilitate it. And I think it's important for folks who are listening to us on Polyoptics here on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, to understand uh, that while Antoine Sanfuentes, Bureau Chief of NBC News, formerly uh, field producer, senior producer covering the White House, uh, is rather humble about this kind of lift, this work it takes to facilitate transmission and coverage of the president, it is such a huge responsibility. And I don't want to gloss past this idea that when you are charged with being the pool producer, that as competitive as you are with your colleagues uh, and that cordial relationship that exists in the White House briefing room, you suddenly shoulder the burden and the responsibility of covering a story for literally everyone. And uh, that is no small task, especially when you consider that uh, you're often cast into a set of circumstances not of your making, not of your choosing, and you're constantly forced to sort of be nimble and accommodate the White House, but stand up for the things that need to be done to tell the story properly, to make sure that you're fighting for access. Uh, In all the travels that you've done, and, and we spent some time in Africa, I was wondering if you could think back on one time or another, Josh sort of pushed you towards this. I seem to recall that you were part of a team that was in Iraq with President Bush. Will you talk about that? Sure. So uh, we were given a heads up, perhaps, I believe it was a, a day and a half in advance that we were going to a secret stop uh, to protect the integrity of, of, the, of the whole operation. We were given a heads up. It involved uh, secret meetings with White House officials uh, walking up M Street in Washington's historic Georgetown, uh, where uh, cryptic uh, details were provided uh, so that I could build a team that would essentially get the job done. Uh, we were told what time and where to meet at Andrews Air Force Base. Not even the gate, uh, the folks manning the gate knew about it. Uh, we had a, a phone call, a, a phone number to make so that we could be escorted onto uh, Andrews Air Force Base. And we were then taken to an area where essentially all our cell phones and beepers and things uh, were taken away. And then loaded onto uh, Air Force One in, uh, inside of the hangar. Typically, Air Force One is positioned out on the tarmac as it awaits the president and the press corps. Because this was a secret uh, trip, the uh, press corps was loaded uh, into the aircraft, onto the aircraft, inside of the, uh, uh, the hangar. Uh, we brought the technology that we would need to essentially beam the signal out from the desert of Anbar. Uh, as both of you can appreciate having been uh, uh, travelers on Air Force One, the best we've ever done is a, a little suitcase in the overhead bin. Let's just say that we the, uh, additional room was found to, for us to take uh, important equipment <laughs> Uh, to fly all the way over to Iraq. Yeah, and I want to just jump in here, Josh, because um, I can tell you, I was probably much more of a hard ass and and more difficult to work with than ever need be, especially when working 
with Antoine Sanfuentes because when Antoine tells you that you need something in order to get something done, you ignore him at your own peril. And the folks who were involved in this trip, and I've heard it firsthand, knew full well that they needed to listen very closely to what Antoine and his expertise and the folks at NBC News said needed to go. Because it was one thing to get it on the plane, Antoine. It was another to get it off and then get it back on. And that's where I think the best part of this story is. So please go on. Well, you know, it's interesting you point. You know, I I talked to another official who uh, told me uh, the other part of the story where my boss, Tim Russert at the time, was essentially uh, uh, briefed at a, a baseball game about the potential for a secret trip. And that's how it was disseminated to me. Uh, But essentially... Um, yes. I mean, when you're heading somewhere, you really need to know what you need to know to be successful, right? So you've, you've got to have the right team. You've got to have the right technology. And then when it comes to satellite, uh, it's all about elevation. And uh, my satellite engineer said, based on, on the region that we were told about, uh, the elevation was perhaps four feet off the ground, meaning that we had to shoot our signal four feet off the ground straight straight out. When we realized we were heading to Iraq um, and landed on the tarmac, there was a pickup truck there waiting for us where we had essentially two hours to set up uh, before the president was to make his uh, remarks. And I'll point out it was a, it felt like 130 degrees out there. I don't remember the temperature specifically, but I do remember making the drive to the speech location uh, surrounded by concrete blocks that were about 15 feet high. And keep in mind, a 15-foot concrete block, your elevation is four feet high. You're not going to shoot uh, through a concrete block. And on the, on the plane ride over, I was told that the place was like the moon. Don't worry about it. You'll, you'll see everything you need to see. Well, we ended up having to find a wooden ladder to get the crew and the satellite dish, and we all went up there. Uh, on top of the corrugated metal roof, keep in mind it's 130 degrees and, <laughs> and the sun is bearing down on us. Um, we had to essentially set this uh, dish up, hit four feet, which we could from that height, and then be ready for the president's remarks, which we uh, sent out successfully. And then we had to break down, get back to Air Force One, and fly to Diego Garcia for a refueling stop. So in terms of... It, it, Exotic, I'd say that was exotic in terms of uh, mission accomplished for us. Um, but Diego Garcia was certainly the most exotic place I've ever been to because, as we both know, um, only bombers go to Diego Garcia. You know, it's a military base. You can't go there commercially. But I'd like to say one thing before you jump in. Uh, you know, having worked with your operation, Adam, at the White House, and yours, Josh, at the, you know, I, I learned a lot from you guys. And, and, and there's a partnership. There's a real partnership between what we do and, and what happens on the White House end. And this, this relationship is really uh, critical. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there were so many times, Antoine, when wherever we would be on these exotic locations, you'd wander into the hotel ballroom and find that curtained-off spot uh, where the pool producer and the, and the network news producers were working, and you'd actually you know, learn from each other, share information, figure out how this story will best get out. And, you know, for all of the logistical challenges that go into actually just being in the spot to be able to record the news, 
the the creative process and the product that you deliver to viewers is pretty simple. It's a combination of words and pictures edited, written and edited together. How have you seen that creative flow change from like the Tom Brokaw, Andy Lack era to the Brian Williams, uh, Steve Kappas era? I mean, I remember, you know, I watched very closely all evening newscasts and during the 90s, the early 90s in particular, the scripts were sort of staccato. They weren't like fully formed sentences by Mikulashevsky or David Bloom. And now I think in the in the Capus Brian era, you hear sort of people stuck speak in more flowing paragraphs. How does that get sort of an, an how does that evolve in the editorial process? Well, there, there's there's always emphasis on 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 writing. Uh, we certainly writing is an evolution. Uh, I would say the production value is, is is the highest it has ever been. If you consider, we used to edit on on uh, uh, beta tape, analog tape, which became anal- uh, digital, and now we're we are non-linear. We edit on Avid here. Uh, we used to travel with those big bulky tape machines, uh, you know, stack of cassette tapes and, and and decks, and now it's the power of a laptop that can essentially cut a piece a video montage that we can put on nightly news that's an extraordinary thing so we have the benefit of the high production value and the ability of the the correspondent to write to that Um, so the era i like to point out the digital journalism era i mean it really the power of digital has transformed everything we do the equipment is smaller it is better quality it can help us get a signal out from virtually anywhere on the globe Uh, It means uh, our teams can travel light, they can be smaller, they can be more efficient, they can be uh, uh, smaller, they can be greener. LED technology has transformed. If you you take a look at our correspondents broadcasting from what we affectionately call Stonehenge, not too far from the north lawn of the, the White House, we now use LED lighting exclusively. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful spectrum. And a guy like Chuck Todd, from an editorial standpoint, is sort of a, a creature designed for this kind of capability. Would you would you say that's true? Absolutely. I mean, in in terms of the writing part, in terms of the writing and the reporting and the the ability to sort of sift through so much data and report on a multimedia basis, whether it's blogging, tweeting, or oh, on the sure. air. Oh sure. Oh sure. He. Uh, it's it's all about real time now. You know, you, you, your thoughts are are condensed and processed. Uh, rather quickly, uh, are we compromising what we do? No, we're not, because we also have access to, to, to unprecedented databases and research. One of the things that we talked about last week, uh, it's insider stuff, but I think there's there's really only a handful of people who could speak to it the way that you can. This relationship that we've talked about that exists, uh, the camaraderie between folks who work in the White House and, and folks uh, who served in the position that you did, and obviously you bring that perspective uh, as a bureau chief, part of this sort of triumvirate uh, in Washington of, of power brokers in the news business who have the capability of dealing en masse with the White House and the State Department, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Congress in times of uh, urgency and breaking news and, and other things. We learned just recently that the bureau chiefs, you among them, have come to the decision that uh, the White House lighting uh, so that has been traditionally handled by the networks and the pool responsibility is being abdicated and being handed to the White House to take care of, although not fully baked. Uh, I, I wonder, 
from your perspective, this idea of news gathering and keeping editorial personnel or people who work for the networks involved, uh, even at those background levels, although lighting is critically important, always to me, both as a, as a White House uh, uh, producer and somebody who worked within the White House, it felt like their presence really showed how important and how integrated network coverage was with everything the White House did. Does this change everything? Well, let me address the lighting issue. Uh, we, the, the networks decided that we will continue to light the, the significant events, so we've not abdicated completely, uh, if at all. The Oval Office addresses, we will continue to do the, what we've always done. We will continue to light and shoot them. Uh, East Room press conferences, significant events. We have said to the White House essentially that we will continue to light and produce the events that we have always uh, handled uh, historically, the major events. In terms of the day-to-day events, technology changed that. You know What we refer to as the photo op, the spray, the smaller events and smaller rooms, those kinds of events, they really don't require our lighting presence. Our cameras go in uh, they have a very um, sophisticated sensor, which allows them today to shoot with uh, in low light. The lighting means that the top light is um, just as efficient as the separate lighting element, if you will. Um, so, and it's actually this lesson evolved uh, over the Bush uh, during the Bush administration, if you recall. Oftentimes, uh, to protect the integrity of the president's message. Uh, the president's own WACA team would pre-light many of these events, uh, and we would walk in with our sophisticated cameras and get the job done. So really, this has been an evolution, uh, and in my view, nothing has changed. So are the scoops headed to to the Smithsonian? (laughs) Well, that's a great question. I mean, uh, nothing against the scoops, but I think we can do better. What are the scoops, Antoine? Uh, They are the the lighting elements that the the lighting... uh, guys use. But let me also address that because, you know, there's been, uh, folks are saying that they're going to, they're, uh, they won't be doing what they have been doing and, and they will, they will continue to do what they do. One of the things that, uh, you know, as we sort of wrap up our, our discussion with Antoine Sofentes that, uh, I remember, uh, of my time with you was this interview that, uh, that you produced with, uh, President Bush and Ann Curry. It was back in uh, 2008, not unlike now. Uh, it was uh, during this presidential campaign year. The president, uh, the incumbent, George W. Bush, was not running for election. But uh, what I'm getting at is not so much the story of, of how you moved heaven and earth to bring you know, the president and the first lady live to the Today Show from Arusha, Tanzania, but what it's like to constantly have the news of day in the United States for your team now who's out there working uh, following the president asking questions in foreign press conference uh, venues where the president is abroad addressing uh, a summit or is involved in a G20 and yet that very parochial home political question gets thrust right up there that seemingly has nothing to do with uh, the, the venue and where it's being asked was that ever difficult for you as a producer to try and reconcile, uh, you know, the, the agenda of the White House or what the United States was trying to do in a place and then bring up that, well, the, the Democratic candidate said this, the Republican candidate said this? Well, uh, 
Let me start by saying, actually, to get to Arusha, Tanzania, was by way of uh, Eastern Congo. I remember that. Right. So yep. we we had spent, which you barely made it out of there alive. We we, uh, it was quite a challenge for us, and and some of it involved gunpoint, but we were essentially there covering Eastern Congo, unprecedented violence. Uh, we needed to get ourselves to Tanzania to preset for the interview with the president. Uh, let's just say that the, the, the chartered aircraft that was hired to get us from one place to the next had just enough room for the equipment. So the, room, the, the equipment got a better ride than we did. <laughs> uh, we had to drive back through R- Rwanda to make our way out of there. Uh, but in terms of your central question, in terms of we start by being respectful. We understand that the president travels the world and he delivers an important message. It could be about AIDS. It could be about something else. But he is also uh, the center of the free world, if you will. And he's up to speed on what's happening back home, as we are. And I have no doubt in my mind he's expecting to be asked not only the important questions as it relates to his travel and where he may be at any given time, but also domestic questions that our audience would expect us to ask. Right, and that that's really the, the rub. This is exactly the kind of thing that people want to hear from the president about. And, and oftentimes, uh, it's, it is absolutely your job and the job of, of NBC and other network correspondents to, to be able to ask that question respectfully, even if it's off topic. It's sometimes some of the hardest work that you have to do. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and, but we do want to be respectful. We are mindful that the president uh, has gone to great lengths to make an important trip. Uh, certainly where that president may be, it's important for the country to be highlighted, the efforts to be highlighted. So you, we really need to square highlighting that effort, but also what's happening back home. Antoine, in the duration of a 20-year career, which has brought you from an intern uh, at the Bureau on Wisconsin Avenue to the Washington Bureau Chief of NBC News, you've always been a very self-effacing guy, focused on the trip, focused on the event, focused on getting the words and pictures back. And yet sometimes, you know, there's all, there is breaking news or there's a moment when the correspondent can't be in position and it's left to you as the senior editorial person at a news site to either get on camera or get on the phone and report back to uh, the, the anchor desk about what you're seeing and hearing. Can you share with our viewers any of those experiences that you've had and when you've, you've actually been the person whose voice or picture has been reporting the news? Well, I'm, I'm, I'll be admitting something here. For the, I, I've never had to do it. I, I, I'm proud to say that the correspondents that I have worked with have always been in position. Uh, and, it, and it's easy to say because I've worked with the best. And I think I've been blessed by the news gods that they were always in position. Certainly, uh, David Bloom uh, gave me a good run for my money. Uh, he was a guy <laughs> that tried to be everywhere all the time and we certainly uh, we miss him he did such an amazing job in Iraq uh, and but I'll tell you that guy I'll never forget a few occasions one in particular where you know we had to get him in position he wasn't quite there it was a uh, on Martha's Vineyard and it was the day that we retaliated for the embassy bombings mm-hmm. uh, we were there uh, again on a presidential vacation the president came it was the press secretary who came into the briefing room, uh, into the briefing area, um, to announce that the president would be there in 10 minutes, 
he announced the retaliation. I had to get my correspondent uh, back to Washington, and it, it turned into quite a coordinated effort to get him back to uh, the north lawn of the White House so that he could wrap. We we made it back to uh, National Airport, I think, by, by 5 p.m., and in the news world, that's rather late if you're trying to make a 6.30 deadline, and uh, he was on that lawn by 6.15. Uh, incredibly humble, Emmy award-winning producer, uh, also, you should know, an incredibly talented documentary photographer. Antoine Sanfuentes, the first Washington bureau chief to join us on Polyoptics. I'm proud to call you a friend and really excited to know uh, where things are going for the 2012 campaign with your team at NBC. Thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Well, the feeling is mutual, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Josh, it's, it's, it's really quite something to be able to look back on my career in television uh, and see friends that I have had, and, and of course for you, someone you've worked so closely with, uh, assume that, that all-important leadership role in Washington the way that Antoine has. I mean, talk about humbling, Adam. I mean, Antoine was the most low-key, uh, sweet, nice, professional, focused producer you'd ever want to meet and at the same time in those in the 1990s when I worked with him on Sundays you'd see his boss Tim Russert uh, both Washington bureau chief of NBC News and also host of Meet the Press and you thought you know it must be it must be a, a, a larger than life figure who could ascend to the role of bureau chief of NBC News and sure enough Antoine Sanfuentes whose real job was basically to get the words and pictures in back to the network so that it could be shared with viewers is exactly the kind of guy that in the in this coming up toward the 2012 election should be the bureau chief of NBC News in Washington D.C. I don't mind telling you that uh, when I was uh, a youngin starting out in Washington, the only job I ever really aspired to was to be Washington bureau chief of ABC News. And uh, anyway, that's water under the bridge. A career change later. One of the things that I am uh, incredibly passionate about are some of the, the technological advances that An that Antoine alluded to. But as a professional communicator, and, and Josh, you deal with this in, in your job as well, the sort of connective tissue that binds all of us these days actually boils down to one word, and, it, and it's Google. Uh, for some people, Josh, it's, it's just a web browser. You type in google.com and it comes up, and for other people, it's Gmail, and you, you, you can do your emailing from it. But it is incredibly more than that, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, Google is where everything starts in a news followers day. Uh, when you, when I want to go to the Drudge Report, I don't do something as as tedious as writing www.drudgereport.com. I I do a quick two step process on my iPad. I go to the little box, which is a Google search engine. I type in D R U D. And intuitively, it knows that I'm headed toward the Drudge Report. And a quick Google search later, it's absolutely at the top. So one little poke of my finger gets me where I want to go, thanks to Google. But the thing I want our, our listeners to understand, and this flows directly into our next uh, guests who are at the, uh, the forefront of Google in the political space these days, especially as we're going into an election year, is that it's even so much more than that. Uh, 
Google is a way to deliver ads. It is a way to promote something. If you have content to share or you're seeking to reach people in a geographic area, in in the multitude of different alignments uh, against priorities, it used to be that television and newspaper was the way to go. But people who are savvy today, who are running, running digital campaigns on the advocacy front, who are pushing out content from a campaign, They can't get to first base without Google, nor should they try. There are other places to go, but our next guest, Rob Sliderman, who's somebody uh, who I'm proud to call a friend and worked with in the Bush administration, now a graduate of uh, Harvard Business School, and uh, with Google, part of their advertising uh, sales team and part of the outreach effort to Republican campaigns, is, is joining us along with Andrew Roos, who does the same thing on the Democratic side. Gentlemen, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you for having us. I think for a lot of people, Google is a monolith, and it's hard to understand the penetration that exists across all of our digital lives. But let's boil it down to this. If you're trying to educate those people who are running campaigns, be it for President of the United States or running an advocacy campaign, you need to be able to get your head around how you can utilize the channel or the platform that gives you the best bang for your buck and the greatest reach. And so, Rob, you've joined on board. You've been with them for a while. What's this education element like, and how successful can it be for people whose eyes are suddenly open to, oh, my God, I didn't even know we could do that? I've been on board for about two months, and it has amazed me how much opportunity is out there for campaigns and issue advocacy groups to seize by using the tools that we're able to provide them. It's everything from search ads, which are the ads that appear when someone types in a certain term into their browser, into their Google search engine, display ads. Google uh, owns something called the Google Display Network, which incorporates most news and information websites that are out there. Uh, including polyoptics, Josh. Including polyoptics. I mean, right now at polyoptics, you'll see an ad for Cabela's and their optical scopes. But, you know, sometimes there's also campaigns. <laughs> Absolutely. The other two main areas that we focus on are YouTube, uh, which is owned by Google, focusing on running ads that air prior to YouTube videos, and then mobile ads uh, that you might see in a mobile app that you're using. And across those four areas, advertising on Google is the most targeted and measurable way for campaigns and issue advocacy groups to reach the people that they're trying to reach, to reach potential supporters, uh, to reach potential donors. You know, if somebody were to sit down in my office and give me that pitch, I might be like, uh-huh, uh-huh. But I can tell you, I spend close to a million dollars a year uh, of other people's money doing exactly what you're talking about. You know, Josh, you know this, the three largest uh, search engines in the world, Google, Facebook, and YouTube. And, you know, it, it, two of those three are, are Google properties, obviously. But uh, when you talk about search, that very simple thing that Josh was talking about, keying off words, contextual search and optimizing search, you have to know what you're doing and work with experts to make sure that if you're relevant to a conversation, that you can be in the right place at the right time. Andrew, what, when you talk to uh, Democratic campaigns, um, obviously there's just one big one in town for the, uh, the presidential elections, but there are Congress and, and, and Senate and gubernatorial campaigns. When you talk to folks, are they savvy and they want to get better? Or are they really still in 2011 come 2012 naive about the power of digital communications in a platform like Google? At the top level, they're very sophisticated, but it's not true across the whole industry. One thing we've seen is it's really hard for a campaign manager to try something new. 
We learned so much in this industry about what we did right or did wrong last cycle. And so what our job is, where Rob and I work on each side of the aisle, is educating people about what's possible. One way to think about it is the most, you know, the simplest advice you could ever give a baseball player is hit it where they ain't. With advertising and campaigns, you have to take the same simple measure. Put it where the people are. You have to show ads to voters where they are, and increasingly, just like you're saying, they're online. They're looking for information. They're sharing things. They're watching video. And if you're not talking to them in those moments and trying to be relevant at those moments, you're missing an opportunity. Because as they're searching for information about a political campaign, they clearly want to be educated about that topic. They might not necessarily want to be educated about that topic as they're walking from their mailbox to their front door, sorting through their mail and come across a direct mail piece. They may not want to learn about politics while they're having dinner and the phone rings with a robocall about a political campaign. But at the moment that they're typing in a candidate's name into their Google search engine or they're typing in a particular policy issue, they want to learn more about what's happening. And that's the exact moment that campaigns and advocacy groups should be trying to reach the people that they're seeking to influence. Guys, back in at headquarters of Google, what kind of marching orders is Larry Page giving out in terms of how Google wants to affect and be involved in the 2012 campaign? Obviously, Eric Schmidt, uh, the, pre, the prior CEO of Google, deeply involved in the last campaign from both a professional and service-oriented standpoint, the, the way that Google was involved in the campaign itself, and then in a personal way involving himself in, uh, in the um, efficiency and productivity committees that President Obama set up. Set up. So what are you hearing from the highest levels of, of Google management about how your company wants to affect and be involved with this campaign? Well, I can't speak for everyone in the company, but our political team has a very clear mission. And it starts with this idea. Democracy is important, but it requires an informed citizenry. So Rob and I, we're free consultants. We always tell people we're talking to, we're free labor. We want to help people use these platforms well. We want to help them use the advertising platform as well, because that might lead to them doing more advertising. But we also want them to use you know, free products well. We want them to use Gmail for their marketing. We want them to use Google+, Plus, which is a free product, and interact with voters in new ways, to organize volunteers or with Google hangouts. Docs to, to get people connected uh, within the organization from different cities, things like that that are free on the platform. That's absolutely right. I'll never forget the last campaign I worked on before I used Google Docs, I had a particular GOTV spreadsheet. It was slotting for volunteers. And at one point, I had 147 different versions of this spreadsheet in my email box. The next cycle, I had all my field staff typing into one form. Let's talk for a second, because I think people who are listening to Polyoptics think, well, is this really Polyoptics? And I would say, you bet your bottom dollar it is, because as you use so much of your brain uh, to, to power your eyes, to, to process the visual, we're not just talking about pictures on the covers of newspapers or events. And you say GOTV, we know that to mean get out the vote. It's really, as you say, educating folks and bringing resonant content forward and making it accessible, uh, obviously to the benefit of, of a campaign, but ultimately to the benefit of users around the world. But tell us about your political background for a second, because you don't just come at this as a technologist or a salesman. You've been involved in politics, and you know what you're doing when it comes to talking to folks who are running campaigns. I worked in Democratic politics for about 12 years. My first campaign was Bill Bradley for president, although my first memories in life was my father running a congressional race for John Bradamus back in 1980. I was five years old. So I've always been around it, and I kind of came up on, on the field side of things. You know, I was, I was the, the first kid out there in New Hampshire knocking on doors. 
And one of the things I love about online advertising and the tools we bring to bear on campaigns at Google is they do have kind of this, this field feeling to them, this grassroots feeling, because you get to measure everything. You know, I was used to coming up on campaigns, having to report in late at night, every night. How many doors did you knock on? How many people did you talk to? How many pieces of information did you get back for them? How many people can we follow up with? And advertising with us, and again, as well as some of our free products, are about those same kind of metrics. You know, you get to track in real time how many people are exposed to a certain creative or a different kind of video, how many people engaged with it, watched the whole video, how many people clicked on it and went to the website and signed up for something, how much did they share. You can track all of these things and have a, a better, richer understanding of how you're engaging people. Josh, when, when I got to the White House, uh, the, the rapid response team was storied, you didn't mess with them, they were busy, and if you sat in a meeting with them, at least the meetings that I got to sit in, you know, you took note when, when, when Rob Sullivan walked through the door and started to speak. Of course, you moved on to Treasury <laughs> um, and, and then off to grad school, but then also served as communications director for now former President Bush down in Dallas. You've really uh, got a, a great resume of politics. How are you translating this in your business degree into helping bring the world of politics to Google and vice versa? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is I've been fascinated by how Google's tools can be used for persuasion. Um, and that really applies a lot of the ideas and concepts that we used in our previous communications roles at the White House. For example, you can place a display ad to appear next to articles that contain certain keywords in those articles. So if there's a news article that's on the Google Display Network, on a site on the Google Display Network that mentions a particular candidate running for office or a particular policy issue, that campaign can ensure that their display ad, the, the, the picture ad that you see next to that story, uh, is relevant to it and, and, and that their ad appears next to a story that's about them. So it's a way to be in the conversation. A lot of what we were doing at the White House, particularly on the rapid response side, was trying to go around the media filter, trying to get our side of the story out there directly for people to be able to see it. And the tools that Google offers enables campaigns and advocacy groups to do that. For example, Herman Cain recently had a display ad saying, bypass the media filter, visit canetruth.com, where he put forward his version of what happened when certain allegations were made against him. The ability to have that ad appear next to a story that's attacking him is incredibly valuable. And it even gets so much more granular than that. You know, you were talking, Andrew, about some of your uh, early door knocking for people like Senator Bradley in New Hampshire. And, you know, we've all done a couple of campaigns in New Hampshire, and the way you used to communicate en masse to Granite State voters was by media in Boston. So that even though you were trying to get just a few primary voters up in Manchester, Nashua, Portsmouth, you'd have to be advertising to Framingham, Brookline, Newton, Boston, Cambridge. And yet what you can do now with Google is a campaign can savvily purchase uh, display space on websites that New Hampshire voters are reading and that New Hampshire voters are using with the zip code that they've inputted for their, their Gmail registration. So you can be so much more efficient with the paid media dollar, can't you? That's absolutely right. It's one of the most excruciating decisions a campaign manager has to make. So I've worked in New Hampshire. I also ran a governor's race in Delaware. And we saved and saved and scrimped and raised as much money as we could and then put a couple million dollars on Philadelphia television. We were getting our message out to half of New Jersey and a third of Pennsylvania to get Newcastle County. Now you can take the same ad, the same video, the, the message that you know has sight, sound, emotion, is compelling to people because the same people are, are making this ad. And you can show it just to the state of Delaware or just the state of New Hampshire or just Stratham County or just Durham. 
the number of people in Washington who thoroughly understand this and are now representing uh, competitors, but really sister channels. Um, they're not under the same uh, rubric, not ownership, but Twitter and Facebook, which in, I think, the general population's mind, they all sort of come together as one, and you, they're, they're symbiotic in a way, because we use them. I use both, and I may have multiple windows going. But again, most people are not consumers in the way that campaigns are. They're not putting dollars against uh, issues and trying to work on persuasion, yet they are the ones themselves persuaded. One of the things that I love to think about, and I say this to my clients, are that when we target you uh, with things, your uh, view of the world changes. And you might think everyone's seeing these ads, because if you're listening to a radio station, everyone who's listening to that station is hearing that ad. But if you are being bombarded with uh, contextual search display ads uh, or or things that are targeted at you as an individual, um, your outlook on the world literally does change because people are spending to find you. One question I have for you guys is the granularity that exists on Facebook, for example. If I'm looking for somebody who works for a specific company, is a college graduate, but, you know, isn't this or has a certain I mean even down they self-identify so people will say a lot about themselves on a platform like Facebook and you can get down to even a more granular level true or false and is that what Google Plus is trying to to, to bring to the next level and how important is that for targeting in campaigns like the ones you all are trying to reach and educate Google Plus is going to be very important to campaigns, but it's not set up to be directly a competitor to Facebook in those ways. What Google Plus really wants to do is offer an experience that's more like our regular social circles. When you're thinking about how you, how do you relate to your friends right now offline, you share some things with, with you know the guys you went to college with. You share different things with your family, I assume. At least I do. I call Josh and tell him everything. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, Rob, Rob and I are starting to see too much of each other's lives. <laughs> Um, but, but the idea is that what you want to do is have more control over what you're sharing and more control over this total social experience. You know, fellas, uh, I really appreciate you coming in today. Is this the, the, the election of mobile technology? And is Google a, a, a very important part of that? Or is everyone still kind of figuring that out? I think everyone is still figuring out exactly how it's going to be relevant in 2012, and it's unclear which campaign will be the one that really defines things. But looking back to 2008, where it was incredibly innovative for the Obama campaign to send a text message announcing that they'd selected Joe Biden as the VP nominee, today that just seems ancient. And so the way that mobile will be relevant is that it's the most direct means of reaching people where they are. One example from the 2010 election cycle is Michelle Bachman in her house race ran a mobile ad that was targeted to people at the Minnesota State Fair within a five mile radius of the mm -hmm. Minnesota State Fairgrounds, attacking her opponent. So it's a geolocated target. Geo-targeted ad attacking her opponent for having voted as a state senator to raise taxes on fried food. The idea being someone's in line for corn dog at the State Fair, they see an ad that's very relevant to where they are. And looking at it from a rapid response standpoint, you know, you're looking through an oppo book, there's certain lines that you might want to use as a campaign manager, ask, have the candidate use in a debate. There are other things you might say look good for a direct mail piece, other things for a TV commercial. But I think there's a new category, and that's things you can use in a mobile ad that are relevant to where people are. Uh, earlier this year, the uh, House campaign in Texas ran a mobile ad that was targeted to people who are physically at the World Series games at the ballpark in Arlington, Texas, where uh, people seeing that ad could click on it to win a baseball that was autographed by Nolan Ryan. And that reinforced the message that Nolan Ryan had endorsed the campaign. 
and also enable the campaign to get a significant number of email addresses of people who are interested in supporting them. So I think we're only going to see more of that as more people adopt smartphones. By the end of 2011, more than half of Americans will have smartphones. That number is going to grow exponentially over the course of but 2012. But Josh King doesn't go anywhere without his his uh, his iPad. That that's a mobile t- device it too. It is. It is. And, Does and that blow you away, Josh? That you're being geo-targeted for display ads on your iPad? Well, I mean, look. As I've often said in the corporate world, that you can keep a close eye on presidential campaigns, whether it's 2000, 2004, 2008, and now 2012, and have a really good sense of how commercial advertising is going to evolve uh, in the in the coming months and years. Because uh, you guys and the campaigns that you serve are supremely incented to exploit the newest technology to the disadvantage of your opponent. And the campaign that more wisely applies this technology is the campaign that's going to win. And in the corporate world, it's that same fight, but people aren't as 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 quick to experiment because their time horizon is so much longer. But you only have a few months, a few key weeks and months, to try and influence voters more than your opponent is. And that's when you have to say, hey, we've got to take this technology out for a ride. And it's incredibly powerful to the extent that the mobile phone or a tablet is literally arm's length away from you. It's not across the room like a TV set might be. And you're more engaged as you're watching a video on your phone or on your tablet than you likely are when you have the TV set on in the background. And not only that, but you're able to then click on the ad and take some type of an action, whether it's signing up for a mailing list or whether it's going to a mobile website and making a donation to the campaign. And, and and just one more thing. I mean, it, it, I'm taking now to reading the New York Times in the iPad app, and not only does the text look great on the screen, but the advertising looks so much better than it did just a couple of years ago when you were reading, you know, seeing banner top, banner side on a website. How has the quality of advertising improved? That's a great question, and I think that's one of the biggest trends this year. So I think Rob pointed out that the mobile is probably the biggest trend. I think this is going to be the mobile election in a big sense. But it's also one way to think of it as a little bit of a professionalization of the people who are doing online. So there's been a whole class of great TV consultants for a generation, and they have a reputation and they make very compelling ads. Uh, four years ago, even even last cycle, you had a strategic advantage just by being online. Right? You, you were kind of answering the questions when your opponent might not have been. Now you're not just answering the question. Almost everyone's going to be online. It's whether you have creative that's integrated with the rest of your campaign messaging. Whether you find, like in this Bachman example, ways to make your ads relevant in a new way. People, as a big media trend, we're just consuming more total stuff. Right? Everyone's spending more time online, but their consumption of other media is not necessarily going down that much. And so if there's more total just data being consumed, it's that much more the important pie is to getting be relevant. Bigger. So, you know, we have a wonderfully uh, astute political audience here on Polyoptics. How do they find you? There's a there's a great search engine called Google. Ah! And you can look for our political team. Exactly. Uh, there's actually a couple different websites you can look at. There's YouTube.com slash politics. And in the coming weeks, we're actually going to be rolling out a new election center for uh, both our ad sales, but all the elections-related materials we put out. And a lot of... Um, these things are things that small campaigns can do on their own. They don't need us to set up a basic AdWords account, although we're happy to do it for even relatively small campaigns. But what's great about this as a communications tool is that it's intuitive to use, and the back-end side of it is something that 
just about anybody can learn how to manage. What's meaningful to me is, uh, you know, you're either going to put money against these priorities and figure out innovative ways to uh, to leverage the technology or not. But Google's meeting you halfway in, in hiring pros like the two of you to be out there on a cost-free basis to help people navigate these waters and learn a great deal. I mean, there's no, you, you, you have an ability to talk to both sides of the aisle, but you have no vested interest in these elections beyond making sure that this platform is one that can be better understood. And I think uh, it would be prudent for us to check in with you as we go through 2012 and see how this is going. Uh, Andrew Roos, Robert Sliman, thank you very much for being with us on Polyoptics. Thank you very much.